Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Summer in the Gospels. This summer, we're spending our Sunday mornings in the Gospels, which are the first four books in the New Testament. In each passage, Jesus teaches an important lesson about what it means to follow Him. When we read these scriptures, it will help us learn more about Jesus and how to help us follow Him. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody in here in the house, as well as those of you online. We're glad you're here. We're in the middle of this series called The Summer in the Gospel. So in his book, uh, How to Be Rich, Pastor Andy Stanley writes about the history of Christianity. He says, one of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith is the simple fact that it survived. The odds against it were incredible. If you look at a typical building, at the building blocks that result in the longevity of a movement, Christianity had none of them. The longest enduring movements through history were political interests that were backed by military might or social efforts fueled by the power of the people. Some movements had superior weapons. Others had powerful unions. Even the peaceful protests that we know of succeeded because they appealed to the sympathies of the masses and resulted in political power. First century Christians weren't organized They had no buildings. They weren't recognized by the government. In everyday society at that time, they were basically considered a cult. For nearly three centuries, they remained utterly powerless, ostracized, socially, politically persecuted, and physically tortured. And yet, somehow, the movement continued to grow. So how do we explain that? Well, over the years, historians have explored the phenomenon in detail, and their conclusion is nothing short of remarkable. Now, obviously, this was God's will and plan for the world, but let me continue with what Pastor Anley writes. While Christianity had none of the conventional strengths required to start a movement, its appeal and influence can be traced to an unexpected source, generosity. The hallmark of Christians in the first century was not their wealth. They had none. It was not their theology either. Their beliefs were so odd that religious people couldn't understand them. What gave them leverage was their inexplicable compassion and generosity. They had little, but they gave. They received little compassion, but they were willing to extend what they had to other people. They were impossible to ignore. Now, throughout Greek and Roman eras, the guiding principle of how to treat people was very different from what we know today. The rule of thumb was you give in order to get something in return. The whole idea of generosity in that culture was find someone who can do something for you and do something for them first because then they'll owe you. Essentially, it was an economy based on reciprocity. As long as you had some kind of wealth or power or leverage, you had a hope of receiving the same from others. This explains why the situation then was so desperate for widows and orphans. They were penniless 
and powerless. There was absolutely no incentive for helping them. It was commonly understood that helping a widow or orphan was a total waste of time and money. You'd never see anything from it. So nobody did it. Into that culture, Jesus walked and announced that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, would be different. He would be, it would be based on a kindness economy. In, in Jesus' kingdom, people would give and not expect to be repaid. In Jesus' kingdom, people would lend knowing that they would never get it back. In Jesus' kingdom, you would do for others what they couldn't do for you in return. He even went so far as to say, love your enemies, do good to them. You know they're not going to pay you back. When you show that kind of kindness, he says, then your reward will be great. Then you will be children of the most high God. Jesus challenged his hearers and with provocative questions. He observed that if you love those who love you, it's really no credit to you. After all, he said, even sinners can love those who treat them well, You see, Jesus' style of generosity was different. One night he gathered with his closest followers for a final meal together. He was their leader. He was not only the most powerful person in the room, but he was the head of this growing movement. What's more, he stood up and announced that he had been given complete authority over the entire world. So then, rather than commanding them to bow at his feet or to humble themselves before him, He did something completely unexpected. He got down on the floor and washed everyone's feet. And as he did, he explained that the rules were going to be different in his kingdom. Whenever people were in positions of power, authority, or influence, they were not to use such positions for themselves. Instead, they were to leverage them for the good of those who had less power, less authority, less influence. And after he washed their feet, he told them to do the same thing to others. So for the next 300 years, they did just that. They went out into the world with this brand of generosity that the world had never seen. They gave to those who could never return the favor. They did good deeds that would never be reciprocated. And as they did, the world was watching. They knew that a whole new kind of love had somehow come down to the planet, and they couldn't help but be drawn to it. Generosity was nothing short of the hallmark of the first century church. It was all they had. And it proved to be more influential than any amount of money or political power. As time went on in history, several plagues ripped through the cities of the region. Each time the people would flee to the country to escape death. Whenever they did, the sick were left with no one to care for them. However, historians tell us that the Christians didn't flee to the countryside. Instead, they risked their own health to stay and to meet the needs of the ones who couldn't help themselves. Many of these Christians died in the process, but they weren't afraid of death. They nursed the sick back to health, and word of their generosity spread like wildfire. The entire perspective of the Christians stood in stark contrast to the pagans around them. You see, the pagan priests were the first to leave town in those situations. They were some of the wealthiest people around, and they had a lot to lose. Not to mention the fact that they were afraid of death. 
So they thought of nothing of leaving their sick loved ones behind in order to save themselves. Meanwhile, the Christians would even take care of the pagans. And as the pagans' health returned, they often abandoned their idolatrous ways and they turned to the Christian faith. Not because of theology, not because of a miracle, but because of the generosity and compassion of the Christians in their communities. Everywhere Christians went, they were known for their generosity and their influence began to reshape the Roman Empire. Eventually, Emperor Julian made a push to bring back paganism, but it was the generosity of the Christians that foiled his efforts. He actually wrote these words. He said, the impious Galileans, meaning the Christ followers, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Basically, he couldn't galvanize support because the Christians continued to do more for the pagans than the pagan leaders did for the pagans. Not because they'd get something in return, but because that's what God's love is all about. This version of no-strings-attached generosity was so extraordinary powerful that it was one of the primary reasons Christianity survived the first century and on and on. So today... We're in this series called Summer in the Gospels. We've been looking at things that Jesus said, and today we're going to look at what he says about generosity. And in fact, when you read through the Gospels, you will see how often Jesus talked about worldly wealth and how to handle it. Now, I can imagine this week, if anybody's been paying attention to what's going on, Uh, You may have thought about worldly wealth a little bit. Uh, The Powerball jackpot lottery reached a billion dollars. Somebody in California won it. Um, The Mega Million lottery has still not been won. And last I saw it was over $800,000. And I'm sure uh, that uh, people have been daydreaming about what they would do if they won that lottery. And I'm sure those dreams include the ways that people would be generous if they won the Powerball or the Mega Millions. But if we look at the example of Jesus, generosity doesn't start when you win the lottery. Generosity doesn't start when, you, when your ship comes in. Generosity is a normal activity even calling card of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at four foundational teachings that Jesus gives us about generosity. And I want you to think about how God used that sacrificial generosity that Jesus taught to spread the message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel. And I want you to think about how God can use generosity to do the same today in your life, in your relationships, in this culture that we live in. Because we're called to be Christ followers, not culture followers. So uh, the most important teaching from those uh, uh, that I want to look at today is this. Jesus said, put God first. Put God first. Now, 
I believe this scripture is essential for being a follower of Jesus. And he gives this teaching in the context that many of us can relate to. In the context of worrying. Worrying about food. Worrying about clothing. Basically about worrying about the basic necessities of life. And I think if you've ever been financially responsible you probably had worried about the basic necessities of life, what you'll wear, what you'll eat. And he goes on and he says, if God takes care of the birds of the air and feeds them, and if he takes care of the flowers of the field and clothes them, won't he take care of us too? And the conclusion of this passage is the part that I want to read. So uh, beginning in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 12, verse 29, and don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he'll give you everything you need. He'll take care of you. It's about putting God first in our lives. It's about making him our primary priority. And that requires trust. That we trust God as we live every day. It requires that we trust God in um, the little that we have or the great amount that we have. It means we trust in God and specifically not in worldly wealth, money, retirement funds, etc. Now, a little later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us with great clarity what we have to do to put God first. And what he says strikes at our tension when it comes to generosity. This is what he said. No one can serve two masters you will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he makes it crystal clear. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. So think about it. Anything that we prioritize in our lives over God is an idol. Could be money, could be a person, could be our children. Could be a thing, a house, a car, a retirement fund. The greatest idol that humanity has faced through history, though, is the idol of worldly wealth, of money. Now, think about this for a moment. Just, just consider what I said earlier. And that, what is it that drives lotteries? Lotteries leverage our human lust and greed for money, specifically money that we don't have to work for, and governments understand this. If you've ever seen the, uh, you know, the payout on the, the $1 billion uh, lottery uh, this week was only just a little over a half a million dollars, where'd the rest of it go? To government taxes. So it, it it makes sense that governments do that. Do you know that 45 of the 50 states have state lotteries? And 100 
of all the countries in the world have lotteries because they understand that you can leverage our greed by selling a chance to win it. And, and you know, let's be honest, you know, I, I think we've all at some point daydreamed about what it would be like to, to win that crazy amount of money. And it just illustrates the idolatrous pull of money. But we know the odds are minuscule. And the, and the history, if you've ever uh, checked into the history of people who have won lotteries, shows that most people can't handle that amount of wealth. That's why Jesus said, you have to decide. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve money? So the, the underlying understanding is that when we put God first and embrace him and his values, and remember, God is not greedy, God is generous, that when we put him first and embrace his values, we will become more like him. And the Bible tells us that God is a giver. If you remember part of just the beginning of probably the most famous Bible verse, John three sixteen, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver. Jesus taught that we should put God first, make him a priority. He also taught that we should be generous. So earlier I mentioned that Jesus said give and don't expect anything in return, but, but he said much more than that. As a follower of God's word, Jesus practiced and affirmed the principle of tithing. If you understand what the principle of tithing is, it, we, we learn about it in the Old Testament. It's the biblical practice of honoring God and recognizing that everything comes from God. And so we will give him 10% of what we earn as scripture tells us to do. And, and in fact, to show that he respected this and honored that once he was actually speaking to some of the leaders who were constantly challenging him and this is what he said. He said, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So Jesus affirmed the practice of tithing. But he challenged these leaders for their lack of living generously toward others because they didn't seek justice for all people and they didn't demonstrate love, the love of God to all people. I'm always amused when, when people will tell me that, you know, well, tithing's just an Old Testament practice. It was like, wait a minute, how do you uh, explain there this here in the New Testament that, that Jesus affirms the practice of tithing, but he said, you can't be just legalistic and, you know, go as so far to even tithe your, your herb garden. He said, you've got to be holistic in your generosity. You've got to, to not just tick off the letter of the law, but you have to embrace the heart of the law, which is to be generous in all of your life. 
In fact, in another passage, Jesus tells us to be generous and give. He goes on to say that being generous creates a culture of generosity. In fact, this is what he said. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, let me say unequivocally here. Jesus is not promising prosperity to those who give. He's not saying, if you give a little, God's going to give you more. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying this. When you are generous, you will create a culture of generosity. When you are generous with your time, with your talent, with your words, with your relationships, yes, with your treasure, you will begin to change the atmosphere, the the culture around you because people will take notice of your generosity. Isn't that what I shared with you earlier that happened in the history of Christianity? That generosity, that generous spirit changed the culture of the pagan world. In one particular instance, we read about how Jesus witnessed the generosity of those who came to the temple to give their tithes and their offerings. And this is what we read. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And this is what he said. Truly I say... This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in all she had to live on. So Jesus elevates and honors this woman for her sacrificial generosity that goes far and above the tithe. As one commentator writes, Jesus commends her, for being rich toward God. He, he, Jesus commends her for trusting God and not money. Jesus commends her for seeking the kingdom of God first and willingly giving sacrificially to God. Jesus affirms this generosity, and we can see that he, tells, that he can tell the attitude of a giver's heart. Jesus tells us, as his followers, to eschew the the culture and what it says about money and to be generous, to live kingdom values, kingdom of God values, and not kingdom of the world values. In another passage, Jesus tells us this. He says, use money... For God's purposes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches the people saying, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Moths and rust can destroy them and thieves can break in and steal them. Instead, store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy them and thieves cannot break in and steal them. Your heart will always be where your treasure is. So just a little background information. You know, in the first century, uh, wealth wasn't... uh, in dollar bills, they didn't have dollar bills. They had 
copper or, or silver or gold money. And it wasn't pure, so sometimes it had iron in it, and so it could rust. Another thing that was considered something that made you wealthy was very nice clothing, very nice fabric. Of course, moths can get in and eat that and destroy it. So that's why he says, don't store up treasures on earth where moths and rust can destroy I appreciate the words of the 18th century preacher and church leader, John Wesley. He wrote this, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it find a way into my heart. If you read the history of John Wesley, he is uh, the founder of uh, what is the Methodist church now, but, but you'll discover that he was constantly giving away what he had. So, We've already said that money can become an idol, that it can take the number one place in our hearts. But Jesus points that out here, but he also tells us to use worldly wealth to store up treasures in heaven. So what's he talking about? He's talking about using money, worldly wealth, as a tool for the kingdom of God. The treasures he's talking about storing up in heaven aren't valuables. It's not money. It's people's souls. It's, it's people who have come to faith in Jesus. He's talking about using money to spread the good news of Jesus so people are saved for eternity. And so God's kingdom increases. Now let me pause here for a moment and remind you of something that's important. The way that we did evangelism in the past is not and will not be as effective today as it was in the past. It used to be that people had a a bit of an understanding of the Bible and of the mission of the church and what the churches did. And so when you shared the good news of Jesus, the gospel about how to become a follower of Jesus, people had some faith dots that you could help them connect to, to the place where they would come to say, oh, I realize I am a sinful person and I need forgiveness. And so I need to confess my sins, and ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. They, you could help them connect the dots. But now, those dots aren't in the culture today. People don't have that knowledge of God, that knowledge of Scripture, that knowledge of what the church is all about. And, and so, you can't connect the dots for them because they don't have the dots. You actually have to help them actually discover the dots. And one of the most effective ways to help them actually to learn about the dots is being generous. Being generous with your time, your relationship what you have come to understand about what Jesus means to you. And yes, with your talents. And and yes, with your treasure. When we are generous, we are starting the process of laying up treasures in heaven. In another place in Scripture, Jesus instructed a host on uh, how he was to host a party and who he was supposed to invite And it carried with it a a generosity concept that is important for us to think about if we want to help grow the kingdom of God and, and spread God's word and lay up treasures in heaven. This is what he said. He said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, 
Don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So please understand what Jesus is not talking about here. He's not talking about earning your way to heaven through good deeds. But what he is saying is that when we are generous in this life, as we begin to create this culture of generosity through our own living, one day, after we die and go to heaven, the final judgment of the world will happen, and we'll stand before God on that judgment day, and he'll ask you, he'll ask me, Clark, what did you do with your life? And if I've been generous, if I've been faithful, Scripture talks about you being rewarded. It's not about salvation because you've already been saved, but, but you'll receive a blessing then. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about being generous and not worrying about getting repaid in this lifetime. He says that we're supposed to use money as a tool to grow the kingdom of God. But he also said one other final thought that I want to look at today. He said, money is a test. Money is a test. So once Jesus said this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? How we handle worldly wealth, whether we have a lot or a little, doesn't matter. How we handle it reveals how responsible we are with what God has put into our care. It shows that we hold, how we hold worldly wealth demonstrates our priorities. It shows what we value and how we want to honor God and live for Him and put Him first in our lives. In fact, There's a story in the Gospels where we see this lived out in living color. Once Jesus was approached by a rich ruler who asked him how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, listen, uh, you need to follow God and you need to keep the commandments. And to which the man replied, he said, well, I've done all that. And then we read this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The Bible tells us when the ruler heard this, he was very sad and went away because he was very rich. Now, why did he react that way and why did Jesus say what he said? Because wealth had a hold on this man's heart and that man couldn't part with his wealth, even to do God's work. So you may ask, well, did this leader fail the test? Initially, we we see that he did, but it's possible if tradition is correct that he eventually came full circle. Tradition tells us that this young man became a follower of Jesus as he got older, 
And tradition says that his name is Barnabas. And if that name sounds familiar, Barnabas shows up first in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And he became a, a supporter of the church. And he was called Barnabas, which was not his given name, because Barnabas means son of encourager. So he was an encourager with his generosity. And tradition tells us that, that Barnabas used his worldly wealth to help spread the gospel of Jesus. He became a companion of the apostle Paul. So did he pass the test? Looks like he did. But what about us? Would we pass the test? You don't have to answer that today, but you need to think about it. Now, this is not everything that Jesus said and taught about generosity, but it's some of the most important things he taught, uh, some of the most fa uh, foundational teachings that his followers both need to accept and apply to our lives. So let me conclude with some questions for you to reflect on. Here's the first one. Are you putting God first in every area of your life? If the answer is yes, that's awesome. Keep on doing it. If it's not, what's holding you back? Next question. On a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is not generous and 10 is very generous, where do you find yourself? What do you need to do to be more generous? Do you need to start following the practice of the tithe that Jesus supported? Do you, do you need to think about how you can use your time, your talent, your relationships in your neighborhood, in your community, where you work, at school? To begin to lay up treasure in heaven? Next question. In your generosity, are you allowing God to guide you to use all of you that you've been given to build the kingdom of God? Here's the final question. If our use of money is a test to show that we can be trusted with more responsibility from God, what grade would you give yourself? The reality is this. We have a Lord and a Savior who gave. He gave it all so that we could know our Heavenly Father through faith in the Son and be saved from eternity, but also to live through this life with its ups and downs with him. He gave for us. So we need to give to him in return. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But as I do, I want to move into a time of prayer. And in that prayer time, I'm going to just allow there to be some quiet space for you to talk to God. Maybe there's something that convicted you in one of those questions. Maybe it's a pledge to be generous to others with your time, with your talent, or with your treasure. Maybe it's a struggle that you have in putting God first, and you need to confess that. So let's bow our heads, and I'll give us that time to pray. So Father, we praise you for your generosity that you are a giver, that you loved us and you sent your son, you gave. We know we cannot outgive you, but we also know, Lord, that you, through your son, have told us that we're supposed to be generous, to put your kingdom priority and you first, and to do whatever it takes with all that we've been blessed with 
for your glory. So I pray for each one of us that we can lean into that. And Lord, right now, just in this 30 seconds of silence, we just take this opportunity to talk to you about what your word has spoken to us today. Lord, thank you for your love, for your care, for your generosity. May we walk in your example today and tomorrow and every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.